the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching Ken Loach's 2016 drama, I, Daniel Blake. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the film, we will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen I, Daniel Blake, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. This one's a story of friendship. Uh, it's uh, Daniel, 59-year-old, uh, had a heart attack, but the state tells him he has to work. Um, and Katie, single mum, moved out of London, big like many others, and in the social cleansing that's happening in London. Um, she's moved out to the north because the rents are cheaper, where she has no family, no support. And it's a friendship between them and how they survive and, and, and the choices they face, which are pretty harsh. I mean, Ken has been working for 50 years as a social commentator, as a, one of our great directors. I have huge respect for his work, but it is creative. I don't think it's an accurate... I mean, it's not uh, true, is that what you're well, saying? Well, I think elements of it are true, but as he said, he's telling a story. Ken Loach's film, I, Daniel Blake, has won. It's won! It's won! It's won the Palme d'Or! The Palme d'Or! at the Cannes Film Festival. It is the most significant. It is the number one, it's the pinnacle of, of cinema, of, of film, of storytelling. And he's won it with a film telling a story about this heinous, despicable, about austerity. This is a film about the devastating effects of banquets for the rich, austerity for the poor, and prejudice for the rest. I did think that uh, whilst on the one level this was a human story um, uh, full of pathos and, and, and difficulty, and I'm not saying for one moment there aren't serious difficulties and issues, you know, when you're under pressure, when things like this happen. And what I did, however, think that the film has taken the very worst of anything that can ever happen to anybody, lump it all together, uh, and then say this is life absolutely as it is lived uh, by people, and I don't believe that. His portrayal of the job centre staff, I thought it was unfair. You know, for example, he's told he can't do anything, he has to do it all online. That's simply not true. They can do all of that on paper, uh, and they would have helped them through this. This idea that everybody is out to crunch you, I, I think has really hurt a lot of job centre staff. There is a scene in it which has been written about uh, ever since the film first played at Cannes, which is a scene set in a food bank, which is one of the most, and I, I say this advisedly, one of the most moving things I have ever seen in the cinema. Now, where the news media has failed, Ken Loach and, and, and art will show you the truth. Toby Young, this bloke who pops up on the telly for some reason sometimes, has written a review of the film by Ken Loach called I, Daniel Blake. He says, the two protagonists are a far cry from the scroungers on Channel 4's Benefit Street. Ken Loach said, it shouldn't only break your heart, but it should make you angry. 
he also said we give a message we we must give a message of hope we must say another world is possible later in the show we'll be taking a look at some other depictions of unemployment in films and tv but first joining me in the studio to discuss i daniel blake are the best reviewing duo to appear on a podcast that discusses the whole of things. Fact. <laughs> it's Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Hello. So, before we... Uh, Andy, before we get to what you thought of I, Daniel Blake, uh, I'd like to get both your views on any preconceptions you had about this film before watching. I think it's important we bring this at the start. Yeah. Yeah. But what were your preconceptions, Andy? Um, I knew this was a Ken Loach film. I knew what he was, the subject he was tackling. So I knew exactly what to expect and I knew how I felt about that subject. So my preconceptions going in were that this was a film that was going to speak to me. I was going to have a, a very big emotional reaction to and uh, I was fairly sure that I was going to like it. Okay, Rachel. Yeah, fairly similar. Um, but I was actually quite scared. Of mm-hmm. watching it um, mm-hmm. because I am so emotional about this particular subject, and I have watched Ken Loach films. He's he's very good at getting me very emotional, and I'd seen even just clips of it and bits that I'd read that I'd caught in reviews about certain scenes, and I put this off for a long time watching it. I really did. I knew it was going to be something that I should watch that I, I had to watch for this, but I should watch anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I put it off. So even even when we knew that we had to do it for uh, to watch I Daniel Blake for spoiler, yeah, you were still putting it off and putting it off. Yeah, me I, too. I, I literally watched it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I, I, well, I did it a little bit earlier this week because I, I am actually trying to be better at doing this. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It was something that I was fearful of being far too emotional over. But here's the thing: is the is it? Did either of you think it would be as you see, I'm about to say, did you think it would be as entertaining as it is? I mean, I found a lot of it very entertaining. Yeah. That's right. So that's, that's that right. So we've reached an amount. Sorry, right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We do all find here it we go. Let's hook a question out there. Rachel, did you find it entertaining? <laughs> I did find it entertaining as far as I really enjoyed the performances and I, I thought it was so effective and affecting. Entertainment almost seems a bit wrong as if it's like voyeuristic in some way or that I'm getting some entertainment from it. No, no, but what I'm, but what it's, I'm, it's probably important that I make, make that point. You know what I mean, but it's important yeah. the listeners knows what I yeah, mean by yeah. that. But where we say, right, okay, we, you and I, I think both were thinking, oh, God, this is going to wrench my yeah, heart yeah. out of my soul here. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say Andy's got a pea-sized heart. Isn't it? <laughs> but I was definitely thinking of you at the time, Rachel. Where, I thought, oh, no, actually, I was laughing at, at, yeah, certain, no, at certain points of it because life's like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I, there were smiles to be had. Yeah. It wasn't just relentlessly bleak, mm-hmm. which, thank God. I mean, at the moment, I'm, another reason I put it off is because there's so much stuff in the news at the moment. And I've been poorly as well, so I'm in not a great place mentally, possibly. So thinking, can I actually put myself through this? Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew I had to, for spoiler. And actually, thank God for the film because it is emotional. And I, I did cry bucket loads. And I did feel quite exhausted afterwards, but it didn't. It didn't absolutely destroy me. You know, I thought there was, as you say, there was things to laugh at, and there were things to that were very endearing and very heartwarming. So it wasn't just this relentless, Ugh, you know, just kill me now. <laughs> it was there was a lot that was, yeah. And I know what you mean by entertaining. That there was a lot to entertain. Well, I think I've had exactly the same sort of reaction as you, Paul, because I was just looking at my notes here, and I've actually got the word entertaining. I'd go so far as to call this entertaining. I've got written there, mm-hmm. and I said, 
I've written, for all the bleakness of the situations the characters find themselves in, it still taps into the human foibles that are so enjoyable to watch. Mm. And yeah. that's why I think Dave Johns is such an inspired mm. choice yeah. as Daniel. Yeah. It's a stand-up comedian, isn't he? And he's, he taps into them so brilliantly. It is, it's entertaining to watch. Paul Lafferty's script tells the story in these broad, accessible strokes that ensure it will appeal to the widest audience possible. And with this film, that is should be the crucial aim over anything else. Absolutely, absolutely. There's no point making a film that's so relentlessly depressing and bleak that it's almost unwatchable. Mm. And it had to be human. You know, no matter how bad things are, there are there is humour and ridiculousness and mm. and love and compassion and all the good things too to balance it out. And I was. I wasn't surprised because Ken Loach is good at that. Yeah. But yeah, I needed that. <laughs> I really did need that. And the warmth of the characters, especially the warmth of the relationship between Dan and and the children and, and the mother yeah. is just so endearing and heartwarming and beautiful that they just carry you along. You don't want to leave them alone. You know, the, the bits where I, I thought in some films it would have been like, I, I don't want to watch this anymore. But with this, I really wanted to. Yeah. I wanted to keep watching them because I cared about them. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed spending time with them. Talking about emotional response, my, my first note today says that I need to tread carefully mm. in this. Uh, on, one, on one level, emotionally, because this is an issue that I'm very passionate about. Mm. It's very close to my heart. I've been through the system, the benefit system, a few times myself. Not, not to the same level as we see here, but I've experienced these things and they're all very recognisable to me. And I mean, often people say when they've when they have seen a particularly emotional film, they say, oh, it's so sad. I cried in the trailer. I've actually cried listening to Mark Kermode review this mm. film. So it's it's that kind of deeply entrenched in me. I also feel I need to tread carefully politically and state up front that everything I'm going to say is my opinion only because mm. I've got some pretty severe things to say yeah well I, I i thought about this and i know where we all lean politically however um we're not the jeremy vine show people aren't ringing in here one white no. van man is not ringing in and saying yeah i reckon that's right and then another white <laughs> van man or a taxi driver is not going no i don't think that's right mate <laughs> that, that's not this program yeah yeah if you want that program it's on weekday lunchtime between 12 and 2 yeah uh, radio 5 live can do it talk radio can do it all those things can do that this I, I, I've definitely thought about this, and I'm, I'm, you can see I'm being quite assertive. You are. You I'm are. pointing a pencil. <laughs> if I was wearing glasses now, I'd take them off and just put them right in you front would. of me because this is. Uh, but I think it's an important point to make. Whereas, yeah, this is all our, our opinions. You're entitled to your own opinion. Um, I don't send it to us. We can't say. But, <laughs> but you'll have your own opinion. But here's the thing: it's that you know it, it would be the equivalent of getting into a Facebook argument. This isn't it? Where yeah. There will be people who think the opposite of the, the, for the three people in this room and, for the, for the record, the producer of the programme, because it's important we make that, that mm-hmm. point as well. I think Johnny's nodding his head in his agreement. Right, that's yeah. OK. Because I don't want to presume or assume anything. But these are our views. You're entitled to your own view. Well, keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, Andy, I, I'm going I'm to interrupt again yeah, no, by no saying that one of my first notes here is me, 23 minutes in. 23 minutes in was the first tier. And I watched this film in two halves. As you know, I'm a bit peculiar in, in watching films. I, I, I sort of scatter it around on uh, tea breaks at work, on my phone, and sometimes late in the evening when everything, everything in the house has gone quiet. Two halves of this film for me. I a tear shed down my face while I was in a canteen full of people at work when he left a twenty pound note for the yeah. le- electricity, and end of the tea break was at that point, and I got up and I sort of a bit of a snivel. Yeah, you know, I got a bit of a cold at the minute, blew my nose and, and went away and thought about that for a very very long time. 
Um, and then um, the rest of the film was uh, of an evening. There was no one else around and floods, absolute mm. floods, an emotional wreck you might find. And then later on, something, something most peculiar happened outside between our dog and some form of wildlife. And that little event, for the whole thing just came shattering down and I was just a complete mess. <laughs> But it wasn't really that little stupid incident with the dog. It was, it yeah. was what mm. was lurking around. That was what uncovered from, it, yeah. from from before. So I realise I've gone through my story of watching this, <laughs> um, but hopefully to validate what you're saying, Andy. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I felt I felt very much the same as you in that. Often, like I talk about having cried in films, and I do often cry in films. But often, when I say oh, I cried in this, what I mean is I, I really welled up, and I I didn't necessarily let it go. Whereas in in this, this is one of those films where. I didn't have that choice. Actually, it forced its way out of me. Uh, not that I, not that I resisted, but I think this is this is a film that's very much aimed at. Well, it's it's going to appeal to people like me. Hopefully, it's aimed at people who it can convince who are who are not convinced one way or another about this issue. But I remember when this film came out, one of the major criticisms levelled at it by most of its opponents was that it was propagandist and one-sided, and here's the thing this film isn't trying to be anything other than that it's a film with something to say and it's not hedging its bets and that's never been Ken Loach's style and sometimes that kind of full-blooded attack is exactly what a film's subject matter requires and when this film came out ministers who were confronted with questions about it they all fell back on the same defense that this is a work of fiction and yeah the characters in the story are fictitious but the story itself is not just based on a true story. It's based on thousands of true stories, which in a way makes it feel even truer. Mm. And this isn't even a cautionary kind of worst case scenario tale, which often they use uh, in Hollywood and things like that. This is a story of what's happened to thousands of people every day. And that being the case, I want the focus to be on their plight on not on trying to see things from the point of view of the people who are oppressing them, because the whole point is that the oppressors don't have a leg to stand on from a moral perspective. They're paying quote-unquote healthcare professionals to undermine the work of doctors, nurses and surgeons in order to force people for whom work is not just potentially but extremely likely to cause severe discomfort at best and at worst death back into jobs for the sake of their statistical reputation. And like this amazing film, I'm not going to mince my words either, I'm going to say that, in my opinion, that is murder. And it's not even some abstract version of murder. If you know the likelihood is that someone will die if they do something and you make it impossible for them to survive without doing it, then you just deliberately killed someone. Now, Ken Loach knows the power of a strong film that doesn't hold back because, like, 50 years ago, he did the TV play Kathy Come Home and that increased public awareness about homelessness enormously to the extent that charities were set up and other homeless charities received a considerable influx of new supporters. Uh, it changed the public's mind or it informed members of the public who didn't know anything about that. And that's the reason Loach came out of retirement to make this film. It's a film that needed to be made and it's a film that needs to be seen. Mm. I totally and utterly agree with you. And I think that whole thing about needing to be seen... I've actually put this should be mandatory viewing. Thankfully, it was Ken Loach that made it, and he has that name. And so hopefully a, a filmmaker of his regard does open doors. I mean, yeah. it won the Palm Door. So there, were, there are more people seeing this and probably would have. Um, but it's just 
one of the most important films I've ever watched. And, oh, bless you, I'm not coming with you. <laughs> it's, even just talking about it is, is very emotional. Yeah. Because it's something that's very real. And, you know, we've, we've talked about, in previous shows, we talked about Ex Machina, which is like, you know, talking about people and the nature of humanity and things. And it's an important film by way of making you think about things, but and it's a film about ideas. But this isn't about a film about ideas. This is a film about life and about reality. And this is actually, for me, what I think film is has the most power. Yeah. Um, and it's storytelling. It is storytelling at its absolute basic value of passing along morals, of passing along understanding, of understanding about the world, of understanding about each other. And I just, I think it's just one of the most important films to come out in many years. I mean, going into this and, and, and again, thinking about it and digging a little deeper as we do uh, for spoiler, rather than maybe just watching this film, uh, when you start to look about uh, uh, Loach's style, unlike you two, I think, I've probably only ever seen one of the film of his, which is Kez. Kez, oh, yeah. yeah. Which I don't like. Um, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I think I believe that's an unpopular uh, opinion as well. I think, I bought. I also think a lot of people see it as rose tinted glasses. And I think did, didn't they wheel the TV in with that when we were kids? And that, you, you think, oh great, we're going to watch a film now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you watch Cares <laughs> and, and you think, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, Not even yeah, Brian yeah. Glover as the PE teacher. Come maybe, on. maybe, <laughs> maybe. I need, I need, I need to go back to it. But in the research, there's a lot of people have talked about. His style and how he sort of, you know, sort of gets you in the room and only gives you like a, a, a piece of script like a day, yeah. you know, yeah. a few pages yeah. of script a day and that kind of thing, which I, for me just seems like a, a brilliant, brilliant oh, way wonderful. of working and just, you know, bringing surprises in and we'll get to that food bank scene very, very, very shortly. And we've mentioned Dave Johns. Obviously, we have to talk uh, about Hayley Squires, who's oh, out amazing. of this, is out of this world. Absolutely and amazing. in this role, when she first started to talk, because I watched this thing on my phone, I paused the film because I thought well, that voice, that, that voice, I recognise that voice. She's been in something. Where do I recognise it from? Uh, so I went straight on the internet. I, I, she's not got a huge filmography yet, yeah. yet because she will she do. She will, mm. yeah. And there was nothing really. I think there was something I'd seen, and then she did, only played as minor part. I thought I definitely not heard a voice from that. Now here's where I heard a voice from. Everywhere, every day. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. where I'd heard a voice from yep. because she's. It was. It was natural, and that is obviously so harder to play when you've got a camera pointing in your face than anything else at all. But she, she, boy, <laughs> she did it. And but it's just that way. I'm assuming because I don't know this really but I'm assuming that Ken Loach gets his people to, to work that way together mm. um, and listening to Dave Johns I think he'd been he'd been picked for the part and then they, they sort of tried, tried a few people and then they just obviously saw the chemistry between the two yeah and it was just yeah yeah it was it, it was such a brilliant relationship in fact all the characters I mean those kids as well yeah um, no, I think they did very well because it's one thing to expect adult actors who have fast experience or you know to say right this is all I'm going to give you but to say to a child, this is all we're going to give you. Mm. And, um, you know, to react to, like, we haven't got there yet to the food bank scene and the mm -hmm. little girl has to react to that. That's good. That's a big ask. Yeah. You know, that's that's some heavy stuff going on there. Yeah. And I thought the kids were really held their own. Yeah. I thought they were really quite amazing. Yeah. Very early on, I think probably my favourite moment in the film, uh, and it's, it's one that I didn't notice until I watched it more recently. First, I've seen this film about four times now. And it's the moment when Daniel first comes back to her house and he sees what the state is and he says, right, I'll get my tools and I'll come and fix all this up for you. And she smiles really big and she just goes, will you? <laughs> and it's that, that smile shows how happy she is, but she's also, she reacts with surprise mm. that someone is offering this to her because the people who should have been helping her haven't been. Mm. So 
that just in that that one little moment, she doesn't say thank you right away. It, it comes like a couple of lines after that, and she's still almost reeling. I think from someone having actually offered to do something valuable to her that will actually help her out. Mm. So I mean, let's let's rewind a, a touch there because obviously this is we're talking about a point where they've met. Let's talk about where they met. They met in the job centre, and this I think is a, is a very good point of conversation for us about the job centre. I mean, Andy, you've, you've talked there about medical professionals which are attached, I believe, to the job centre, but not actually the job centre staff. Yeah. Now, I think there were certain murmurings, and certainly Ian Duncan Smith defended job centre staff. And I would say if there's one... I, I, well, I'm not about to say, oh, this is this is one thing that's wrong with the, with the film, because there will certainly be elements of truth in it. Um, just about how perhaps I was surprised how terse some of the job centre staff were. Now, so when when you go away and you start doing a bit of research and you you find out or you listen to a podcast, I listened to Scroobius Pip interviewing Dave Johns, and it was, it's really interesting because obviously he's done a lot of research and he said, well, actually, you know, it's, if job centre staff don't uh, give out so many sanctions, you know, they're, they're dragged into the office and made to understand why to, to to their bosses. So maybe after a while you can see why they'd be terse. Also, here's here's the thing: I can't imagine for a second that that job. Is very easy working inside the job change is very easy at all so being that person that does being these decision maker people it wouldn't it a lot of the time we'll wait until the decision maker gets back yeah. to you and all this kind of thing you think, well, when's that going to be because i've got to eat yet i can't imagine any of those jobs are, 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 are very easy and they I, I don't know what training goes into it however it's it, it did surprise me i was surprised in this film if this is if this was a realistic you know if they're saying this is realistic was it i mean what, what are your opinions on on the way the job center staff spoke to their client. This was a concern for me when I first watched it. I was worried that they were going to be shown to be this sort of brutal wall mm -hmm. of kind of oppression. And having signed on quite a lot, it wasn't that I, wasn't the experience I had. I had a, uh, a regular worker who was brilliant and she knew I was trying my hardest and she'd work with me to try and help me out. But sometimes she was away on courses and then I had to go and see someone else. And there was a bit of a random mix of people. And occasionally you would get someone who was very much like the, the terse woman who he meets here. Mm -hmm. And one time I went, I went to see uh, one woman. And you can tell it's the, the people are trying to sort of make a name for themselves. They're trying, to, they're trying to claw their way up or they're trying to do their job to the absolute letter. And part of that seems to be to send you away demoralised. So I went once with 18 jobs I'd apply for, three of them I had interviews upcoming for, and she threatened to sanction me if I didn't, next time I didn't write in full sentences in my job diary rather than put the dates and I should put, today I looked in this newspaper and today, and so it was very obviously to me, obvious to me that she would do that to anyone who came to her with anything. So you do get these these characters there, and it was very important to me in this film that they do have that that one woman who is genuinely trying to to do her best for Daniel, and you assume everyone else is coming to him. And I think if there's if there's one other person whose story I'd like to hear in this film, it is hers. She's the woman who's working within a system which she doesn't necessarily agree with, but she knows that if she steps too far over the line, she's going to end up amongst the unemployed who she sees on the other side of the desk every day. So I think that her presence in it is really important and it's important that 
in the same way it's so important that people don't just uh, see the unemployed as one thing I don't think people should see job centre staff as one thing they're mm-hmm. people there they're doing jobs they're doing what they have to do but it's to what degree you throw yourself behind the obviously wrong ethos of that yeah I mean, it's obviously the policies and regulations that are at fault and I must admit I was really thankful for Anne for that character yeah and that's when, when my very first tears came when she was helping out Dan on the computer mm. um, because she was the first one that was showing him some humanity yeah. um, and then she got in trouble for it I can imagine in a place like Newcastle when uh, in a job centre there that, that you're going to get all sorts of different people and a lot of pressure and a lot of people and if somebody comes up like Dan and you know, they hand over a, a CV that's handwritten and and you haven't got time for this, I haven't got time for this, you know. Yeah. And it's it's deeply, deeply sad that, I mean, Anne had the time, or she would like to have had the time. Um, and you sort of get the feeling that maybe Anne's been working for the DWP many, many years previous. Yeah. And so she, she knows what it should be. And she's just going to hang in there because she just she she's passionate about helping people. I'm putting a whole new backstory on her because I feel that she deserves it. Yeah. And um, the fact that, you know, as soon as Dan walks into the job centre and sees her, it's like, oh, there's a friendly face. But that should be across the board. Yeah. You know, everybody should be there under the same aim of helping people. And it doesn't feel like that is the aim. The aim is to demoralise and to get them off the books. Yeah. Not how can we help this person to, to back to life, back to living instead of surviving. They just don't seem to have that ethos. And did, but nobody else seemed to. I mean, even the security guards, they were so quick. There was no, there was no leniency. It's like... I have heard this. So, yeah, when Katie is, is sanctioned for being just a few minutes late and she's explaining why, totally understandable, yeah, that's fine. Why can't they just go, yeah, that's fine? What is this rigidity? Yeah. It can only be because they've been given this is, not just this is the rule, but this is why you have to stick to the rule because the rule makes no sense. It's just completely inhumane. My heart was pounding throughout that scene. I was absolutely rageous and sad and emotional and I just my heart was I hate confrontation I hate injustice and it was like this is just insane and I was I was kind of glad they went out together because like right you've now got a unit that's really good but I was so angry and just that that relationship is important and keeping that going isn't it it really Mm. is yeah it is yeah I mean you feel in it just in the first 15-20 minutes it's uh, anger uh, emotion, uh, laughter, of course. Yes. So, you know, let's, yeah. let's not forget that as well. Um, and just you know, in, in perhaps the way that uh, Daniel sort of uh, talks with his neighbours and stuff like that as well. You know, just like this, this thing about you know, get your bins away and all this kind of thing. <laughs> but it's and you, at first you wonder, you wonder, don't you? Because that's, that's very early on where he talks about the bins. You think, well, what kind of character is he? This is is he going to be? Is he going to be a moaning neighbour or this kind of thing? But actually, you know, I mean, it's not. It's just looking after his own neighbourhood. Whereas you know, telling the, the fellow with the dog who's who's doing a bob on the on the grass, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's saying, you know, clean that up and all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Just looking after the place and the people around. Him. and that's that's obviously what kind of character he is uh, particularly when he starts to help to help Katie out I think what what got me as well was um bef- and this is why it needs to be seen by everybody is that when you see him outside on the balcony and he's moaning about the rubbish and stuff I can imagine some people would think he's going to go into his house and it's going to be a bit messy and you know he's his language is a bit fruity and everything else <laughs> but he listens to radio 4 he's a carpenter it's very quiet. It's mm-hmm. a very modest house. Yeah. You know, he's a very, you know, I'd say he's almost quite, quite well to do. You know, this, this, this thing that people put on the unemployed yeah. is that, you know, scroungers, messy, no good whatever, which is all rubbish. Um, and for, 
for David Johns' character, from the outset, he looks, you know, he hasn't got a lot of hair and he's a bit gruff, but he's, you know, he's gold-hearted and, and he's looked, looked after his wife for so long, and which was saving the state money because he was caring for her. Mm-hmm. So he'd done his dues. Don't get started. And um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, so he'd had this lovely life and these lovely mobiles with the fish mobiles and stuff and this nice, gentle man. But to the to the outside, to everyone else, to the person, to that woman in the job centre, he was just an awful person that didn't want to work and she was going to sanction him and that was it. Mm. It's that preconception that we have about people and, and he's breaking down and it's this sort of film that can break it down. I think this film does it amazingly well from the title onwards mm. because there's this idea that, that unemployed people and the poor are the just desperate and shameless mm. and that... And that title, I, Daniel Blake, it's immediately, it's like an affirmation of dignity and pride. And that's something that this film never does. That You see the, the characters being victimised, but they never take on the role of victims. Mm. I, think, I, I agree with you about the I, Daniel Blake thing. That's really, that's, yeah. that's an affirmation of identity of, I'm not, I mean, he, he says near the end about, you know, well, he doesn't say, but the, the eulogy says, about, you know, he's not a number, he's not, you know, he's not a client, he's yeah. not a service user. You know, it's not I service user, it's not I client, it's I Daniel Blake, I have a name, yeah. I have an identity, I have a life. And um, that's that's such an important title. It's, and obviously it's something that he writes on the wall as well. Yeah. But it, you know, there's nothing that's not thought out, there's nothing that's left to chance. It's so masterfully done. Yeah, it's, it's so that important. I, isn't it? It's yeah. that, that perpendicular pronoun. Yeah, yeah. It's... A, it's it's just an affirmation of, of self against yeah. the, like a, a system that's striving to erase any sense of personal identity. Yeah, exactly. Someone somewhere must have made a gag out of I, Duncan Smith. Must have <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they must have. They haven't. I'm going to, I'm going to write it's one out. I say, it's begging for it. Yeah, not. it is. Yeah, yeah. Leave, leave that to me and uh, I'll see you next time. <laughs> I think maybe to perhaps put a close on, on where we're talking specifically about job centres, although feel free to bring it up at any point. Um... <laughs> I felt that they were perhaps, uh, as well as the, the, the complications that go into what we've talked about, I felt like, <laughs> damn it, I'm trying to find the word rather than to say baddie. If this, 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 <laughs> the, the, the villains are the people that put this system in place, but we don't see those people. Yeah. No. Although yeah. those people are available, I suppose. You know, politicians and MPs and things do do surgeries mm. and they are available to write to and things like that. I think, you know, we perhaps need to keep our, our minds open towards that. They are there but they're not there in our everyday lives are they for me for me actually for me they're oh i don't think i would ever go along to mp surgery but they they are people distant people on 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 the telly yeah here's here's the thing though this is i mean this is indicative all the way throughout this digital by default thing yes they do do surgeries how do you find out when go online how do you find out who your counselor is go online he can't go online these people that need the most help can't go online So it relies on on charities. There's an amazing um, charity that I saw on the news, and she, she but her entire job as, as a charity is to help people out with appeals and do all the stuff that Daniel couldn't do. So go on the computer for you, print out the forms for you, do that stuff. Well, that should be done by the job centre. That mm-hmm. should be done by somebody employed by the government. So in your experience, sorry to interrupt, Rachel, but in your experience, Andy, of, yeah. uh, of being in that position, I, again, I found that surprising in the job centre. Do you think is that sort of help? available there or did they just say no get down the library i remember signing on when they were because i'm i'm old enough that i when i first went to the job center it was still cards on boards Uh, but i remember Mm. like going to sign on a time when they'd they'd gone over to online and uh i went and in i said 
uh, I want to sign to Job Seekers Alliance, can someone tell me how to do it? And they said on the door, oh, no, we can't see you unless you've got an appointment. Mm-hmm. So I had to go away, go home, go online, book in there first and then go and see them. They wouldn't give me, a, they didn't have leaflets or anything or no one would talk to me and advise me what to do. I had to go home and put it together until I had an appointment booked in. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even get past the front desk. And that was years ago, right? Yeah, so yeah, that was that was a long, long now. time ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. A beautiful piece of uh, IMDB trivia, which we like to pick on from time to time. Daniel was offered a drink from a water cooler. Water coolers were removed from job centres in 2010 as part of the cuts. Yes, yes I saw that too and thought, wow. Yes. <laughs> the one concession, and actually that couldn't have happened anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure in that situation he'd been offered a drink of water from a tap, but still. Now, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I, 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 you know, we, I, I think there are set pieces in this film flow through in between. Now, I, before we get to another set piece that could get a little heavy. Um, I want to talk about the, the, the continue to talk about the filmmaking itself because this got a lot of international awards and international acclaim. You talked about the Palme d'Or earlier, yeah. where it got a fifteen-minute standing ovation. Mm. You know, fifteen-minute standing ovation—that's going to get to about seven minutes. And if you're, I think if you're clapping, that's fine because you've got something to do. If you're the person <laughs> receiving that, oh, I'd start to feel a little awkward. After <laughs> like seven or eight minutes, think. Ooh. They're going to carry on, but it does. I mean, it, it deserves that. However, this does translate. I was. I think I was surprised by that. Mm. So I don't know. Is this is this happening? Is this happening all over the world? I mean, is it, there's uh, poverty, poverty is transla- translatable, obviously. Oh God, absolutely. But uh, I, I think I do. I was surprised just ha- ha- how much it's it's affected other people in other countries as well. Everyone understands injustice, and everyone knows somebody that's that struggled, and people have struggled themselves. I think regardless of the context if you see somebody not being helped and you see that they could be helped there's just an inherent kind of you want to help i like to think humanity dictates that we should want to help that person that's that's universal spoiler what was that spoiler episode that we did in a foreign language what was that film uh, separation. separation separation we should always steer people towards a separation oh, any, it's any, any excuse it. it's really good. and so that universal language I think of a lot of flim. <laughs> there was a lot of red tape in that film, wasn't there? But, uh, but that 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 kind of thing. Yeah. Again, I can see that there are parallels, but there are things there that you can see. Right. Okay. Now I understand why that translates because you you know there are the international languages of uh, of injustice like that. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely right. Um, right. You can see I was trying to steer it away from going from <laughs> from a job centre to a food bank, <laughs> but you know like we were trying to put off watching the film let's not put off talking about this food bank scene anymore uh it's funny because i was listening to the uh, podcast i talked about earlier scroobius pip distraction pieces podcast if you're not familiar with it get yourself familiar with it and uh dave johns was a guest on that and he 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 talked about and he he was just about to start talking about the food bank scene i quickly found my phone and paused it and said right i don't want i don't want to hear that because he was might gonna do a spoiler and actually he didn't with the next phrase was right i don't want to spoil it for anyone who's not watched it (laughs) okay and he's going watch the film and i watched the film and i thought well what what from that point there was i don't know a few hours between that and i was thinking what what could possibly happen what's Mm. what's what's going to happen in this you know i mean obviously it's just not gonna be a a laugh or a bomb go off or anything like that but what's going to happen and I was yeah I was floored mm. absolutely floored by it and I think there had been a hint towards uh, Katie 
what Katie did, and let's, let's just get straight into it. Katie dived straight into a tin of beans, didn't she? Mm. The first opportunity when she thought no one was looking. Um, and this was filmed with people who work in a real food bank up in Newcastle. Uh, so, and they weren't expecting what mm. was going to happen. Uh, Dave Johns had a hint, but nothing really towards that. He just sort of said he'd had his next line and he said, go with it. You know, he said, it's not your fault. Go with it. And I said, it's your next line. And it's shocking, isn't it? It is really shocking. But there have been hints towards it when I think it, uh, Daniel had been round and fixed something and you could see Hayley eating an apple while they all had some beige food on a plate, right? Mm. Um, so you kind of knew what was going on in, in, in the background. But to actually then see what what happened and, you know, mm. shoving those beans in the mouth, particularly because I don't like beans, but <laughs> it was it was particularly severe. It really was. It really shocked me. I'd heard, oh, there's a, there's a scene in the food bank. That's what I'd heard. That's mm. it. Yeah. And like you, I was thinking, well, how, how bad can it be? What's going to happen? And I loved the, the difference, the juxtaposition between the way they were treated in the job centre, the way they were treated in the food bank. There's all of a sudden this huge just warmth and humanity in the food bank. And, and I love reading afterwards that it was people that actually work in a food bank. These are real people. Yeah. And I thought, oh, you're just wonderful. And when the lady takes her off with the bag and they're putting different things in, she's having a really nice conversation with her. Mm. And I was thinking, and that was brilliant from somebody who's not an actress as well. That was lovely, really yeah. natural. And then going around and then Katie was asking for sanitary towels and I was shocked. Oh, we don't have those. Um, that made me yeah. think, where do they get them from? And then, you know, she was going around to get the tins. And I was thinking, OK, everything's still OK. What's, what's going to happen? And then as soon as she sort of opened it, I thought, oh, my God, Katie, you're so hungry. And, and it wasn't, she didn't even put hand in, she poured it out, which makes no sense. Because yeah. that's how adult she was, you know, she just started pouring it out. And I thought, oh, Katie, God. And I, I sobbed, obviously, <laughs> just broke into tears. <laughs> and the obviously the food bank actress, or not actress, she didn't know she was about to do that. And her reaction was beautiful. Yeah. She was struck with, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, come sit down. And obviously then Dan came over and then the little girl came over. And Hayley Squires in that moment, my goodness, I was like, I hope they're not actually to do another take, or if this is a second take, wow, because that is raw. Mm. Yeah. Think, God, you a, know. a different thing gets me every time I see that. Mm. That, and this time it was when she sits down. She's she's obviously she's mm. reached that point of desperation mm. and she's crying, but she keeps apologising, yeah. and that's something that that you know I I think most people have at that moment where you 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 can't keep it in, but mm. you'd you feel like you're, you're burdening people and you feel like you've done something wrong and mm. you keep apologising for crying. Even though people are comforting you and telling you you've done nothing wrong, you feel mm. irrationally like you've done something wrong. Yeah. And that that really got me. Also, the, the sanitary towels then got me this time because it was something that, like, knowing that food bank scene was coming, I'd always been focused on what the big thing was going to be. And so I'd, it was this time that I really noticed that that's the moment when she first mentioned sanitary towels and that it becomes clear that she can't get sanitary towels. And that is something, you know, that mm. hadn't even occurred to me. I was thinking, right, she, she needs food and she needs uh, warmth and, and water and everything. But to imagine like having a period and not being able to, to do anything about that. Yeah. It's just horrendous. It's so undignified as well. As as a woman watching it, with, with her saying that, I thought, oh, I assumed that I'd be able to get. In my head, I was thinking, I assumed I'd be able to get those in the food bank, and I just just the indignity of it, and having to ask for it, and then her thought, of, well, how do I get them then? It's like, and you know, if you can't afford to wash your clothes, and you're making a mess in them, what you know, I just my head just went completely yeah. there. I was like, oh my, ugh. but it's just they should be basic, absolute basic. 
Mm. But then when she steals them I later, know, yeah. and that moment of kindness from I know, the, thank goodness. the store manager. I was so relieved. <laughs> I really mm. was. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I mean, it showed the humanity, and that was another moment that got me going. Yep. <laughs> One of the yep. many. Um, it's, it's funny, as we talk as we talk through the film, we think, oh, yeah, that, I went then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went, I went <laughs> at that point, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, the food banks that, that, that we shouldn't need, and I, I think it's important to say that they are historical food banks, aren't they? So we're not just talking about uh, a particular government that's in, it's got... Mm-hmm. Probably were I don't know I don't know the facts on this, but my, my my feeling is the well let's say the awareness of them has got worse oh, no. because I don't know the facts. Food bank usage has gone up right exponentially. Yeah. It's, it's a huge. Okay, well I just didn't want to say it without knowing yeah. it because but that, you, you otherwise say, you course, turn yeah. you turn yeah. into an internet freak. No. Yeah. There have always been food banks, as you say, but they've never been used to the extent that they're being used at the moment. Uh, but I think they I think as someone who donates semi regularly. I see you certainly get the feel at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this in the summertime now, and uh, you think oh hang on a minute oh. This hasn't been in my consciousness. I've seen this mm. film now, but it hasn't been in my consciousness. Mm. And here's the thing, here's the thing that I've, I've noticed, whether, whether you do or not, and whether this is even relevant, I don't know, but I think it's worth talking about, is that a supermarket usually puts their food bank collections after you've been through the till. There should be some kind of thing, when you go into the supermarket, maybe put it, I don't know, near close to the door, some kind of sign that triggers you. Because yes. at that point, you're thinking, oh, I've got my shopping bags, where are the kids, what's going on here? What did I need? What did I come out for? I had a list of three things, I've already got four things in my basket, what on earth's going on? You've got all this going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So, actually, once you've gone through the, the checkout, you see a thing for the food bank, you think, oh, yeah. Damn, I didn't. I didn't yeah. put anything. In. I didn't. I didn't get anything. Have I got anything here? Oh, I should really do that. But if I do that, it means I've got to go around the supermarket again. I've got to go and pick the kids up from school, etc. And that just sounds like a whole lot of excuses, doesn't it? But actually, just in the flow of things, if you put that in people's consciousness, yeah, yeah. Uh, that they're, they're going to get there. And also, the thing very, very important to remember is actually look up. If you're going to donate, look up to your local one. Very, very easy to do. Uh, so, so for example, we record this in the beautiful Cathedral City of Lincoln and our Lincoln community larder is there. And straight away on the page, he says, look, here's the things we do need. Here's the things, yeah. we, you know, we've got plenty of, but thank you, you know, thank you very much. Sometimes they give explanations as to why they can't use certain things as well because people think, well, oh yeah, we've got this bag of chickpeas kicking around in the cupboard. That's because no one likes them. Although, <laughs> I bet you two do, don't you? <laughs> do like yeah. The problem is you, you have to make meals with those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what makes yeah. it difficult. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We talked, Andy, you, t- you picked up on the point earlier where people who have uh, perhaps been against this film have talked about it being a work of fiction. Uh, but all of this stuff is, is really backed up with facts. So yeah. if, we, if we look at the, the Lincoln community uh, larder, they have uh, case points and case checks. So I don't know whether they use people's real name. Uh, but one thing they put down there, it said, said that uh, Gemma had been on Job Seekers Allowance for well over a year. And in that time, had applied for countless jobs. She was matched to a job by the job centre, but failed to apply for it as she'd already applied for it recently and been turned down for the same job a few weeks previously. This explanation was not accepted by the job centre and she was sanctioned, meaning she didn't get any money for two weeks. Now, because Gemma had been on benefits for so long, she didn't have any money put aside to cover such an emergency. So it was issued with a Lincoln Community Larder voucher so she could at least eat. So that's a real case from Lincoln Community Larder, which backs up pretty much everything that's been said. Yeah, absolutely. In this. Yeah, that's one case. Yeah, it's, it's not fiction. No. It's absolutely... The characters are fictional, but the situations are not. I mean, that, that the Beans thing, that was actually based on a story that Ken Loach mm-hmm. was told. Yeah. A real story from a food bank. When he, when he talked on, on the Today programme, Ian Duncan Smith said, well, some of these cases, of course, are real, but he said he didn't see it all combined. Now, actually, when you talk about combining... You're combining two different people who've met in a certain set of circumstances, and they come together and help each other out. So it did, it did seem... 
he understood the point he was making. I understood the point he was making. I didn't believe him <laughs> um, because it was it was a case of right. Yeah, he's, he's trying to say oh, all this is combined. All this combined into one film. And actually, these are just two separate stories. Yeah. Mm. But if you take if you part those two separate stories, um, you know, someone who's been uh, turned down because of his his heart and things like that can't get a job because because of his heart condition, and then a healthcare professional says he is, and that kind of thing. So there's that, and that's obviously a set of scenarios. And then the same for Katie as well and her yeah. set of scenarios. Yeah. All right. You double those up and then it does seem like a lot to take on but these are just two separate people exactly. and hey I'm Joe Schmo right I'm a factory worker right as you well know I'm you know it's like I've not seen as many Ken Loach films as other people <laughs> around this table however I just I, I'm clever enough to say no there's two separate stories yeah. there yeah you know I mean exactly. all of our stories as we sit around this table and we've talked many many times about mental health right and all three of us are affected by it yeah and if we all get in here and clamber upon it and say, right, okay, to a listener, they can go, oh, man, that's, 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 a, that's a load of stories. But all those stories are true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and they're all separate. Yeah. But there's three different people that have come around and told those stories. So, yeah, come on. I'm not yeah. having that. No, no it, it doesn't invalidate them, does it? Desperate no. attempt to invalidate it, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Talking about the politicians, I mean, Mary Black in the House of Parliament, she said that the government should watch this film. I think there was definitely there was definitely someone, and again, forgive me for not having the, the details because it does seem important to have details here. But I did sort of read one government minister that hadn't watched the film but gave a review of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah there was. Hang on a minute. I mean, no one should ever do that. No. But particularly if you're a government minister talking <laughs> about this kind of film. But yeah, you know, here's here's the thing: whether they they do or not, it does appear, and it appears. It's very important to say that, like they don't care. They know what's going on, mm. and they don't no. care. No, I think that's very true. I mean, there's a reason that that the UK has been investigated for various human rights issues by the uh, United Nations, and there's lots of different things that we like to go and pronounce that we're really good at this and that and the other, but we're being investigated on so many different things because our system is inherently cruel, mm. and that can't be allowed to stand. And it's, it's things like this, it's awareness raising like this, it's so important, because while people are being turned on each other, which the media are incredibly good at doing that, we're all very, very, very good at blaming one another for the problems that are going on in society. We're never looking up. We're never looking at the people that are actually causing all the, all the issues. So we need films like this. We need accessible things that show us the reality of what's going on so we can actually look at each other and go, actually, we're not the enemy. The enemy's up there. We need to sort that out. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a part of me that, that believes when... Uh, later on in the film, he, he sprayed eye Daniel Blake on the wall. Where there's some fella who's uh, yeah. let's, let's should we call him a street character? <laughs> yes. uh, who is um, swearing about uh, Ian Duncan Smith? There's something that's me. And Ian Duncan Smith will have watched this film, and there's something about when he heard that name. I I don't know. I think I don't know. He'd have enjoyed having his name mentioned. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just me taking it a little too far. No, I think you might be right. Now most of us will experience unemployment at some point in our lives, if we're lucky. Only fleetingly. But attempting to depict on screen the complex reasons for joblessness and the effect it has on individuals can be tricky. Andy has been taking a look at some great and not so great examples. There's a moment in Robert Benton's Oscar winning drama Kramer vs. Kramer in which Dustin Hoffman's newly single father, Ted Kramer, finds himself suddenly unemployed while simultaneously entangled in a bitter custody battle over his son Billy. Advised by his attorney that he will have no chance whatsoever of winning his case if he is out of work, Ted confidently announces that he will have a job within 24 hours. Despite his attorney's scepticism, Ted spends one brief scene circling vacancies in a newspaper before forcibly pushing his way into a job interview from which, despite having disrupted his potential new employer's Christmas party, he emerges successful. Mr. Kramer, 
got yourself a job. Congratulations. Really? Is he kidding? Not at all. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Now, how are these scenes supposed to make the viewer feel? The hope seems to be that they'll inspire and uplift us, displaying how Ted's love for his son imbues him with the strength and determination to achieve anything. But in its borderline insulting simplification of the struggle faced by the unemployed, these scenes feel to me like the cinematic equivalent of Norman Tebbett's infamous 1981 speech, in which he raved, I grew up in the 30s with an unemployed father. He didn't riot. He got on his bike and looked for work, and he kept looking till he found it. This reductive attitude towards the unemployed has unfortunately proliferated since Tebbett's tirade, and if joblessness is portrayed at all in film and TV, it tends to be shown in a sensationalist way designed to elicit unwarranted rage. A show like Channel 4's 2014 documentary series Benefit Street, for instance, instantaneously plants a series of nasty preconceptions in the viewer's mind with its deliberately provocative, lurid title. Comedian and critic Charlie Brooker wrote, Benefit Street is a title cynically chosen to push buttons, and that ploy has worked. It hangs over the show like a fart at the start of a folk song, changing the tone of all that follows, stinking out the EPG and clouding human minds. It's hard to shake people free from prejudices to which they cling so tightly that they almost absorb them, making relinquishing them seem like a scary prospect. In this respect, the importance of realistic portrayals of unemployment in film and TV is a crucial factor, with audiences understandably more likely to seek something escapist over something grimly realistic. Bringing an accurate representation of unemployment to the screen can be tricky, but those that have managed it have often proved gripping, devastating, and most importantly, genuinely influential in a political as well as artistic sense. When Tebbit made his speech about getting on your bike, he failed to address what you might do if that bike got nicked. Vittorio De Sica's 1948 Italian neorealist classic Bicycle Thieves tells the story of Antonio, a family man desperate to find work in post-war Rome. When he's offered a job posting advertising bills around the city, Antonio's wife pawns her prized dowry bedsheets in order to redeem his pawn bicycle, which is crucial for Antonio to be able to perform his work. But the bicycle is almost immediately stolen threatened to plunge Antonio back into unemployment and poverty before he's even completed a day's work. With the police proving no hope whatsoever, Antonio and his son Bruno have no other recourse but to try and track down the thief and the missing bicycle themselves. Bicycle Thieves follows Antonio from one encounter to the next, each one ending in frustration, humiliation or harassment. Even when the thief is located, Antonio is unable to prove the crime to the satisfaction of the police. Crushed and desperate, Antonio himself spots an unattended bicycle, and sending his son on ahead, he attempts his own crime, but is immediately caught in the act. Bicycle Thieves pulls no punches in its depiction of what unemployment can mean to a poor family, and the lengths to which the threat of poverty and starvation can drive a human being. But crucially, Bicycle Thieves is a film about empathy. We spend much of the runtime despising Alfredo, the thief who stole Antonio's bike, and yet having followed Antonio from the beginning, 
when he himself attempts to steal the bicycle of some other poor innocent, we almost root for him to get away with it. Had we started the film from Alfredo's perspective, with Antonio as the unknown victim of the crime, we may have felt the same way. Likewise, if we'd been focused on the owner of the bike Antonio attempts to steal, we would have hated Antonio. When Bicycle Thieves was shown in America, the title was often translated to the singular The Bicycle Thief, but the original title is crucially instructive of the film's acknowledgement that, given the wrong set of circumstances, we all have the potential to become the titular Bicycle Thieves. It appears at the close of the film that there is no happy ending, as a defeated and humiliated Antonio disappears back into the crowd with his son. But the modicum of hope comes from the owner of the second stolen bicycle, who, noticing young Bruno as Antonio is being led away by police, drops the charges against him and requests his release. Bicycle Thieves challenges an audience used to being given cues to who they should empathise with to instead look at the bigger picture. It's easy to feel pity for someone when you know their whole story, but De Sica encourages us to remember that everyone is part of their own story, whether we are privy to it or not. Antonio's climactic assimilation into the faceless crowd underlines that fact, and a small act of kindness and understanding from a stranger becomes our sucker, and hopefully our template. Bicycle Thieves gives us a glimpse of the effects of unemployment, but it structures itself around a quest plot, a formula immediately recognisable to most film audiences. Wrap the world in happy paper Bells and bows and happy paper Finnish director Aki Karasmaki's Drifting Clowns was probably a harder sell, focusing exclusively on the mundane search for employment without symbolic MacGuffins or analogous plot devices to sweeten the deal. Drifting Clouds follows the story of married couple Ilona and Laurie, a head waitress and tram driver respectively. Just about comfortably existing on their salaries, the couple are thrown into turmoil when Laurie loses his job one day before Ilona discovers that the restaurant where she works is being sold to a chain who are bringing in their own employees. The rest of the film follows the pair's attempts to secure employment but they encounter problems at every turn, from unpassable medical exams to crooked employers. Throughout the film, Ilona encounters several of her former colleagues, all of whom are struggling to find jobs. In one of Drifting Cloud's most interesting threads, Karasmaki examines the different ways in which people cope with being tossed on the scrap heap. While Laurie and Ilona intersperse their ongoing job search with bouts of heavy drinking and smoking, former chef Lejeunen already a deeply troubled man while still in work, finds himself too consumed by despair and apathy to even begin looking. Though it sounds like a relentless downer, Drifting Clouds combines Karasmaki's flair for minimalism with melodrama and a healthy dose of mordant, deadpan humour. In an early scene, the newly unemployed Laurie leaves the house confidently and will quickly find a new position. Karasmaki immediately cuts to that night, as Laurie returns to the house and collapses face first, comatose on the carpet. In a matter of seconds, and without even having to show us the particulars, Karasmaki encapsulates the frustration and devastation of a climate where jobs are as elusive to the job seeker as sympathy. 
unlike Bicycle Thieves, Drifting Clouds does offer a happy ending, but in extricating Alona and Laurie from their situation, Charismaki acknowledges that good luck is often as important as persistence and determination. Life can be as randomly cruel and kind as the hovering nimbi of the title, and if into each life some rain must fall, we should spare a thought for those with less ready access to umbrellas. Christopher Todd. All name. Christopher Robin Todd. It was me, ma'am. Perhaps still the greatest, most thorough and most influential exploration of the effects of unemployment, Alan Bleasdale's extraordinary five-part drama series Boys from the Black Stuff was first shown on BBC Two in 1982, and its impact was so immense that popular demand led to a retransmission of the whole series just nine weeks after its original airing. Focusing on five recently laid-off tarmac gang workers and their struggle to survive on their meagre benefits, Boys from the Black Stuff struck a resounding chord with many of the three million unemployed trying to eke out a living in the Thatcher era, not just because of its satirical accuracy, but because the characters Bleasdale created were real, rounded human beings, rather than politically skewed ciphers. While it's easy to empathise with Antonio from Bicycle Thieves, or Drifting Clouds Alona and Laurie, Bleasdale's most iconic creation was the monstrous Yossa Hughes, a violent, abusive bully of a figure whose grip on sanity diminished with every second of screen time. You're Graham Souness, aren't you? Yeah. You're famous. Well, I'm Yossa Hughes. You would look like me. Oh, I. Magnum as well. Desperate to hold on to his children, seemingly his only remaining connection with his own humanity, Yossa was pushier and more persistent than Kramer versus Kramer's Ted, only this time with realistically fruitless results. His catchphrase echoed throughout the 80s, a desperate tragicomic plea undermined by its own ineloquence. Giz, go, go on. I could do that. You don't have to walk straight, I can walk straight. Bleasdale pulled no punches with Yossa, acknowledging his history of spousal abuse and thuggery, and yet audiences of the era recognised him as a human being, and therefore worthy of sympathy when put through the hellish existence of 1980s unemployment. Even more remarkably, Bleasdale manned considerable humour from the scenarios. One of the series' most famous moments undercuts Yossa's suicidal desperation with an absurd juxtaposition when he consults priest Father Dan Thomas for guidance. I'm desperate, Father. Call me Dan. Dan. I'm desperate, Dan. heartbreakingly inevitable response firmly situates Yossa in his own inescapable ridiculousness, even as the situation reaches the point of greatest profundity. I grew up in the 30s with an unemployed father. He didn't riot. He got on his bike and looked for work, and he kept looking to the When Norman Tebbit made that infamous speech, crucially, he failed to reveal exactly how long that process took and whether, while undergoing this search, his father had to contend with people berating him with terms like doll scum, or for those who think a vague mastery of alliteration makes him superior, doll dosser. One need only visit a job centre for a matter of minutes to see that the range of different people in different situations cannot be categorised under one convenient, mean-spirited term. Look, 
There's Antonio next to Alona and Laurie. Over there is Yossa Hughes next to Frank Spencer and the Full Monty Boys. All of them got here by different routes and having different experiences with joblessness. But one thing does unite them. Every single one of them is on their bike and they'll keep pedalling until they find work, however long that might take. If only more people would act as a reassuring hand on the back of the saddle instead of a jagged twig in the spokes, the road back to employment might be a lot less bumpy. Okay, thanks for that, Andy. It's amazing that that gizzard job quote is still very relevant oh, today. Yeah. Although it's not something I, I don't think it ever really gets repeated a lot, does it? That sort of... Boys from the Black stuff no. hasn't been repeated for a long time. Yeah. No, it's... It really should, shouldn't it? Oh, it yeah, should. it's, it's <laughs> absolutely phenomenal there is, yeah. Okay. Um, so moving back in, in, into the story, and sort of before we get, get to the end, there's something uh, probably quite vital that, that, that happens following. I think we picked up earlier that, that she'd been in a market, a supermarket, was it? It was like a, a corner shop and, and, and stolen some essentials that she needed. And the security guard makes her see the manager. The manager lets her off because he understands that. And then she lets him back out to the security guard again. And then it's a case of someone preying on people. Now, in Lincoln here, as we talk about homelessness, we've seen a huge rise in homelessness. We've also seen a huge rise in drug abuse amongst the homeless. And in order for, 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 the, for those people to receive the drugs, someone needs to prey on those. Someone needs to make money out of doing those and selling the drugs, the drug dealers. And in this case, it's the, it's the same here. There's, there's someone there seeing that someone's got a problem and sees an opportunity for himself to make some money out of then what, what turns out to be Katie moving into the, into the sex industry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That was really revelatory to me, which, is, which seems crazy. I mean, I actually wrote in, in my notes... Revelatory moments, men preying on vulnerable women. And then I put, well, hang on, no, I know that men do. <laughs> yeah. But it was a surprise to me in this context. For some reason in my head, I hadn't thought that, you know, being in that situation of sanctions could lead to then such desperation that you would then think about selling your body. Actually, it makes perfect logical sense that that might be something that you would be so desperate. And if you were preyed upon in the correct way, which he totally was, she was a very low moment. And then that that woman, she was worse. I, I hated her more than the man. Mm. It's like, you're a woman, what are you doing? Yeah. And she was like, oh, don't cry, don't cry. It's all going to be okay. It's like, oh, you manipulative. Because that's all she wanted to hear at the moment, was, everything's going to be okay, don't cry. And it was just horrendous. I mean, and it was cleverly done because at no point did they say prostitution. But you knew what it meant. And as soon as Dan sees that thing, that saffron escorts, and you're like, oh, God, don't go that way. But what else is she going to do? And as a woman, that's kind of the one thing that you've, you've got to sell, which is really bad. But you think, God, how many more women have done that? How many more women have got themselves into this kind of industry because of this, because of sanctions, because of this broken system? We've now got women who are in extremely dangerous situations because of this. I mean, this is just... Yes, they can get food from a food bank, but... Yeah, I mean, it's not going to put shoes... I mean, that was something... It's the shoes, was, yeah. yeah. Shoes Absolutely. and school shoes and things, There's things it? like that. And she's trying to stop her child from being taunted at school. You know, it's not just the basics. There's so much more to living and thriving than just the basics. It, was, it just absolutely broke me. And and she didn't want Danny way near it either. It's like, that has to be separate. This isn't me. This is something that is... She'd compartmentalised it entirely. Where, you know, and she'd already made £300 or something that day. And yeah. I thought... How do you not then go back and do it again when your child says, I need this or I want that? How do you say, oh, I, my dignity or my, my body is more important than mm. you? You know, as a mother, I think you would do that. And that's horrendous. 
absolutely horrendous. And I just, I, oh, that broke me again. It broke me so many times. But thankfully they came together again, her and Dan, because I thought, oh, please, please don't let this be the thing that breaks you apart because you need each other. Mm. You know, he's your best friend, please. I mean, that's how I saw him, he's your best friend. And, you know, you need him now more than ever. But is there, is there any indication anywhere that she stops? Because no, no, I, there isn't. I, the I think she's still film, doing it. It's, it felt to me like she was still, yeah. and she has lost Dan at that point. So. Yeah, no, I, I did believe, I, I'm afraid I didn't think that the ending was good for her, especially. I thought that, yeah, there's no indication at all that she's managed to get out of that or get into a job or whatever, because the fact is, once you start getting that kind of money that you can earn from, and once you've done it once or twice, well, why not just keep doing it? You're earning money that you're never going to get clean in. That's the hours that suit you. And, um, you know, it's the most horrendous thing ever. But once you've given it, you've given it. You know, it's already broken. So I, I did think this is not good for you because you haven't even got Dan now. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it's quite a bad ending for her in my head, which is quite cynical. But I think genuinely, realistically, that is probably That's, what we're looking yeah, at for her. Yeah. I mean, Dan goes to try and talk her out of it, but... you. Realistically, he, he wouldn't, would he? And no. he, he it's probably the, the wrong way to go to oh, yeah, to take it that way and have him rescue her from it. Mm. It would be yeah. it would be entirely wrong narratively, yeah. wouldn't it? Absolutely and unrealistic as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and going back to I suppose where where you picked up on earlier, Andy making the comments about death, and in your opinion, I'm going to think about that. In your opinion, murder. Um, this is where we say goodbye to Daniel Blake. Yeah, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, towards the end, towards the end of the film, where he's, he's getting his appeal come through, but it's a stressful situation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If ever you're in in any kind of situation where where someone appears to be an authority, mm-hmm. and let's say you know we we've quoted Rick Mail on on this program before, and I choose any point where I possibly can to do so. <laughs> When he talks at Exeter University, this is going to be a, th- a theme for this entire series. When he talks at Exeter University and says, no one can ever genuinely call themselves your superior. Mm. And that's right. Uh, but you do end up in life. I think even when I've gone back to sort of my kids' schools and things like that. And you do get, you get this authoritarian mm. thing like that. And it's very, very stressful. But when the stress then turns out, well, are you going to be able to heat yourself? Are you going to be able to eat? Mm. Are you going to be able to furnish your flat? This kind of thing. When that, that decision is resting on it, then, then it, it really turns into something else. Uh, and give that to a man with a heart condition, and then you have yeah. the, 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 the outcome. Uh, where I went, and there was a point where I was disappointed that it ended that way, and I thought, you selfish... And I'm not, not going to say what I said then. You selfish person, Paul. Just to, to think that this isn't the, the, the end of a film that you wanted it to be. <laughs> you wanted it to be a happy ending. Well, guess what? Life's not like that, is it? Yeah. Uh, and that's... You know, it, it, it's true. It's extreme. It's not an everyday case, but it, it must have happened for it, it to be in this happen. film. For me, it's the only way it can end. Yeah, I thought because that too. if you had the audience that you're trying to reach, if you leave them with a sense that it's all going to be all right fine, in the end, yeah. then yeah. you've completely undermined the message that you were trying to put across. But for me, it's I walk away with it from this. Obviously, it makes me feel sad and angry, which are two things which it should do. But I also feel uplifted and empowered by the fact that someone has made a film putting this viewpoint out there and too often the plight of the poor and the unemployed and the disenfranchised it's either it's either not heard or it's wrapped up in some kind of voyeuristic divisive package that that treats people like animals in a zoo and so i think it's important that people are sad and angry at the end but i i really feel positive that someone has made this film and is getting that viewpoint out into a country that's flooded with negativity based on 
unfounded, mean-spirited nonsense. And also that it's getting awards as well, that it's yeah. being, you know, which is elevating it's it. validated. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really important. Not that I'm into awards, but actually I think if any film needs that, this one does, partly because it absolutely deserves it, but also to give it that validation of watch it because we, it's really valued as yeah. a piece of art and as a piece of work. And it's funny, talking about the ending, I actually stopped it for a second because he was around the table with with Katie and with the really lovely man in the wheelchair who was totally lovely. Yeah. And um, he, I'm, he, he said confident too often. I'm so confident. I'm so confident. I was thinking, oh, flipping egg. <laughs> and I thought, do you know what? I can't. I need to know what's going to happen. I need to read what's going to happen before I see it because if it's more than I can bear, I'm going to have to stop and come back to it in half an hour or something because at this point I was so overwrought that I thought I need to at least have a bit of a sense of what's coming. So I actually stopped it and I went online and I read the synopsis and I read down and I read down and all I saw was Dan died and I thought, right, that's all I need to know. Right, I'm not going to read how or why. That's what, that's, okay, that's, that's the ending that I'm going to have to brace myself for. Okay. And I took a few deep breaths and I pressed play again. And, um, and that's when he went into the, into the bathroom and that's when he had his heart attack. And I felt the same as you. I didn't actually feel cheated as, as such because, again, I felt like that was the only way it could possibly end. And in some respects, not relief, but just the agony and the torment and the frustration. I didn't want him to die, but at least it was all over for him. But I just wanted some release for him because it's just so horrendous. But then my thoughts immediately turned to her. Yeah. Like, what the heck are you going to do? Because um, who have you got? I just, I, I started panicking. <laughs> but... One of the things that I read and one of the things I heard from Hayley Squires was that Dave Johns was only told in between takes that he was going to die. And Hayley wasn't told at all. She was just told to go into the bathroom and something's happened. Yeah. So she didn't actually know at all. I thought, well, one, that's really brave. And two, wow, Hayley Squires. Yeah. Because her reaction, well, it was very real. You know, that chemistry between her, between her and Dave Johns is really powerful. And her reaction was just absolutely gut-wrenching. Because, you know, she wasn't just losing a friend, it was a mentor, a father figure, as, as such as so much she was losing there. And it just, it just felt so cruel and so unfair, so near to, to things turning round. So we talked at the very beginning about preconceptions and, and, and before the film. What, what did you do after the film? When you, you watched this film? I right? went online and found out as much as I could about how people access sanitary towels and I looked up loads of things like mm. that. I was really galvanised. I was really, right, what can I do? It wasn't just, I can't be just a passive viewer here. Mm. I need to do something about this. This is immoral. This is, in, this is unjust. This cannot stand. And so I immediately thought, what can I do as an individual to make sure that the message gets out and also that I can make some physical, real, tangible difference? So, yes, I looked up the community larder. There's also Lincoln Food Bank, which is another one which is run mm -hmm. by the Trussell Trust. Um, there is also in Lincoln um, Let Them Eat Cake, which is a homeless thing, homeless charity where they go out on a Saturday night and they feed the homeless. Mm -hmm. So there's lots going out there that you can get involved in. There's lots that you can actually actively participate in. And we can do that. But I think ultimately you need to use the power of your vote because it doesn't matter how much you try and put band-aids over this situation. We can't be the ones that are holding the safety net, but they shouldn't need a safety net. And the only way you can affect that change is by voting. So... That's really sort of the, I'm really galvanised yeah. to not just do some things myself, but to make sure that people around me are aware of what's going on and to make sure they vote and make some real change. Andy, uh, after I after I watched it, I 
did what I often do, which is go online and looked up reviews and see what people thought about it. But this time I really wanted to do that because it had such an impact on me. And I knew I was going to go around and I was going to recommend this to people. Mm. And I wanted to see what the negative responses had been so that I could counteract that. So if I, if I met someone who saw it or I recommended it to them and they didn't like it, and they came back and, and said to me, oh, it's not realistic because of this or it's not a good film because of this. I was prepared to, to tell them eloquently and fully why I completely disagreed with them and hopefully not let the message of the film get lost amongst just disagreements about filmmaking. Because mm. I think some people are so uncomfortable about it. I did see a few negative reviews and it was almost as if they're so uncomfortable and so didn't want to acknowledge it that they just started pulling the film down on on technicalities. Yeah. And I thought, you're just missing the point. But that was willful. That was absolutely done in complete knowledge. Yeah, I, I just don't want to deal with this. But, you know, you've got to embrace the whole thing. And so it's great that you're thinking that way because you will we will get hit by, you know, when you go out there saying, you must watch this. Yeah, but blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You must be able to go, yes, but. <laughs> and, you know, I like the way you said, you know, that you want to be able to say that you disagree with them. You didn't say that they're wrong, but yeah. you disagree with them. And I think that's the way we've got to approach this. It's not by saying, well, you're wrong, but saying, well, this is the way I see it. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely work to be done, and I think this film totally galvanises people to do that. It does. I broke up a fight between uh, Leia, General Leia, the leader of the Staffy Resistance, and <laughs> a hedgehog. Oh, uh, oh. And the hedgehog kind of won, I think. There was oh. blood kicking around the kitchen floor. It was a horrendous scene. I cleaned it up, and then I just ended up in a pile on the kitchen oh, floor, rather upset about the whole scenario. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and it, was, it certainly wasn't about a dog and a hedgehog. Um, okay, I, I've been in thousands of minds about whether to trivialise the ending of this podcast with a rating. But life's like this, so we need to. Um, right, <laughs> and I'm going to want accents from you. Oh, crikey. Thank you. <laughs> Is it... Why I, Daniel Blake. That's Geordie, by the way. Yes. Or is it, near chance, Daniel Blake. <laughs> okay. It's why I, Daniel Blake. I, why I, why I, Daniel Blake. <laughs> that's really good, Rachel. Sorry, Andy. Sorry, no, Andy. 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 That's fine. I'm... Bit of work, but... I've watched Billy Elliot a lot. <laughs> it won't surprise you to know that I've never seen that film. <gasps> well, I don't recommend it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I just wanted to, before we finish, if it's all right, I just wanted yeah. to tell one last story, which of I, course, I yeah. wanted to leave to the end because I know it might destroy me. <laughs> um, recently, I was walking through Lincoln High Street and I saw a homeless man lying near the bank. I was quite a long way away and I could see as I approached him that he was having some kind of seizure. And as I rushed towards him to, to try and do something, I saw just hordes of people walking past him. Some were looking directly at him and not doing anything. Some were very pointedly trying to look the other way. Uh, now, as I, as I arrived, another lady came up as well, thank God, and she got her phone out and she, and, and she tried to converse with him and she rang an ambulance and I, I said, is, is everything all right? And... and <laughs> I thought about this a lot afterwards and I, th I thought there's no doubt in my mind having moved it over that if that had just been a businessman in a suit that every single person walking past would have stopped and tried to help him 
and that's the country we're living in right now and that's the country that I think so desperately needs this film on primetime BBC One as soon as possible I totally and utterly agree I, me and my housemate fished um, a man out the river in Lincoln um, clearly not at all well possibly a little bit drunk but also very very frightened and um, it took quite a, well there's four of us actually it took four of us to get him out of the river and over the fence and he fought us he fought us a little mm. bit because he wanted to go back in the river but we wouldn't leave him be and you know we stayed with him and I put something under his head because he, he was hitting his head on the on the pavement most people I mean fair dues most people walked past because they could see we had it what shocked me was when I phoned an ambulance and I phoned the police and neither of them wanted to know so the problem isn't just pedestrian it's mm. also in the system and that really concerns me. I love the fact that there was a lady with you. And I yeah. love the fact there were two other people helping me and Tim to get people out of the river. And thank goodness for those people. Those are the people that are going to change the world. And those are the people that need to make sure they're spreading this message and changing things for the better. Now, all that remains is to thank you for listening, downloading, and to thank our producer, Johnny, as always. And we'll leave you with the genial Andy Goulding. While visiting the job centre, I looked up at the sign and noticed something that induced a shiver down my spine. It's called Job Centre, singular, and not Job Centre, plural, suggesting that there's just one job for everyone's procural. And suddenly it all made sense. A modern coliseum where critics of the idle poor can gather round to see them, lured like lambs to slaughter with the promise of employment, then forced to battle to the death for everyone's enjoyment. And as they watch the unemployed becoming the deceased, they cheer each time the surplus population is decreased. Oh, how they whoop and holler, how they whistle, clap and smirk, as government assessors deem the corpses fit for work. And as the patrons light cigars with crumpled ten-pound notes, they'll bellow at the jobless throng to slit each other's throats, bite and tear each other's flesh and gouge each other's eyes, until the last one standing is rewarded with the prize. He mounts the pile of corpses, reaches out a trembling limb and takes the details of the job that now belongs to him. The one and only real job, though tainted now by shame, was always the objective of this real-life hunger game. So, haunted though he'll always be by that which he's destroyed, he hopes to feed his family now he's gainfully employed. But hope will wither quickly when the poor sod gets in contact and finds out that the bloody job's a zero-hour contract. Listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us, share links to our show, or write us a nice review on iTunes. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Next time on Spoiler, we're reading Nobel Prize-winning author Ishiguro's fantasy novel, The Buried Giant. It's queer the way the world's forgetting people and things from only yesterday and the day before that. Like a sickness come over us all. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall, and it's a Joe Schmo production. 
The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of London. Don't let the bastards cry.